Okay, uh, it's great to be together this morning. Last weekend, Grace and I were in uh, Istanbul together, and I just wanted to update you a little bit on uh, what we got up to there. We were out visiting Life Church. We've got friendship with, connection with. I've been there a couple of times over the years. It was the first time that Grace had been out to uh, Istanbul. We were staying with Mark and Ruth Zeely. And Mark and Ruth were with us here at Gateway last summer, and uh, we had a great time with, with them. They were really quite a remarkable couple. They left England uh, six years ago or so to go and be part of the church planting team and spent a couple of years learning the language and are very, very fluent in the language now, um, Ruth particularly. Uh, that she, uh, the Turks can't quite work her out because she doesn't look Turkish, but she sounds like a Turk, and so they can't quite work out where she fits and always ask where she's from. And, and, uh, but they're an amazing young couple. And we had a great time with them. Istanbul is an extraordinary city. If you've never been and you get the chance to go, I'd really encourage you to go and check it out. It's just an extraordinary place. The history is incredible. Um, I see the uh, picture on the, on the right-hand side there is in the Hagia Sophia, which is the, uh, what was the cathedral, then a mosque, and now a museum. Absolutely incredible building. Um, vast city uh, in an area the same size, kind of size as London, but twice the population. And that puts real pressures upon doing life in Istanbul. There's, it's not like one of our big cities. There's, there's, there isn't green space. So along the side of the Bosphorus, uh, they have recently reclaimed some land and built this little strip of park, which is where you can see us walking there. And uh, it's kind of the one area of green in the city. So it just gets rammed with people at the weekends, all sitting there having their picnics. And uh, there's a kind of a three-lane motorway which goes down the side of it, running down the Asian side of the Bosphorus. But because there's nowhere to park, they just park. So they, and uh, they'll park one line deep, and then when that's full, they'll park two lines deep. And then you'll end up with just one line of motorway because everybody's just parked along the side of the road. And that, the traffic always is horrendous in Istanbul. Uh, so last Sunday, we left Mark and Ruth's house, and we got the bus to where the church meets. It took us about 25 minutes in the morning. Coming back in the evening, it took us two hours because the side of the road was parked up and the traffic was so awful. And that's kind of typical for Istanbul. Uh, Andy and Jess, who lead the church, uh, Jess has been quite unwell, so I explained the other week. Uh, so they, they're out of uh, taking some time out, although they made it to church last Sunday for the first time in six weeks. It was great to see them. Uh, where they live, it takes two hours for Mark and Ruth to get to Andy and Jess's house because of how difficult the transport is. So just doing life in Istanbul is really tough. It's an incredibly intense place. People work massively long hours, and it takes uh, ages to get anywhere. And that means by the time it gets to the weekend, everybody is just exhausted. Um, and uh, it has quite a melancholic feel, actually. Uh, Turkey's best-known author, Orhan Pamuk, writes about Istanbul being a melancholy city. And there is something, kind of a sense of melancholy about it. I think partly just because people are so exhausted uh, from the pressure of life and the intensity of life. Um, and also it's interesting being in a culture which really doesn't have any kind of Christian heritage. Uh, there's lots of brokenness in our society, but you go into a culture which doesn't have any kind of Christian heritage foundations and you can sense just degrees of brokenness in terms of uh, people's relationships and, and personal Lives. It's a city which is divided between the European side and the, and the Asian side. And uh, the church that we're friends with, Life Church, are based on the Asian side. And uh, we had a great weekend with them. Uh, I think we encouraged them, and it was encouraging to be with them. Uh, they've just planted another church recently uh, on the Asian side. And uh, there's a third group just beginning to gather on the European side to start another church there as well. So they're really going for it, but it is hard. Uh, it's a massive city, an 
an intense city, um, very few Christians, only 5,000 evangelical believers in the whole of Turkey, 80 million people. Uh, there's, there's a kind of a spiritual oppressiveness about it as well. So they've done immensely well in what they've achieved over the last six years, seeing Turkish people come to faith, getting baptized. But at the same time, there's a kind of real uh, personal toll in just what it demands to, to be doing life and ministry in that city. So it'd be great if we could keep praying for them, especially if we keep praying for Andy and Jess as they're having to take some time out because of exhaustion, really, and ill health. Um, pray for Mark and Ruth that they would stay strong and know God's grace and the other leaders there. And uh, yeah, pray for um, God's blessing on them. It's, uh, it was a privilege to be there. Intense weekend. Got there Friday night. Left first thing Monday morning. Uh, but it was brilliant to, to see them. Uh, a little bit later on, I'll show a, a video greeting from one of the couples there as well. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the theme of good investments, which follows on from that very well. The guys in Turkey who've gone from the UK to start that church have had to invest a lot to do so. And uh, we're thinking about the theme of good investments in our series from Proverbs 18. And uh, we as human beings desire security. The, the desire for security is fundamental to the, to the human experience. At the most basic, that's we're looking for a roof over our heads and enough food to eat and clothes on our back. In our society, uh, we have more than just roofs and basic clothes and basic food. We're looking for other forms of security as well. We think about things like pensions and we have mortgages to be concerned about and we are worried about things like social care, what happens to us when we get old and those kind of questions. And of course globally there's questions of security, uh, international security, tensions between nations, questions of terrorism. Uh, Istanbul, Turkey's right at the heart of that. Uh, just Thursday there was another bomb in Istanbul. Uh, questions of international security are important to us. And then there are things like our personal financial security. Uh, there's talk of wealth management. If you Google wealth management, as I did the other day, there's lots of people who are wanting to manage your wealth. It's a phrase I find particularly nauseating. Um, it's a phrase that's designed to make us feel self-important. You're wealthy, let's manage your money for you. It's a, it's a kind of phrase that's designed us to make us feel that wealth is ours by right. That if you invest right, you will be wealthy, you will be secure. That's what all these wealth management people are trying to sell us. Uh, let us look after your money and you'll be secure. That's what they're trying to offer because the desire for security is very deep in the human heart. We want to know security. And one of the ways in which we can feel more or less secure is connected to the amount of money we do or don't have. But is wealth really where we can find security. This is what the proverb says. Proverbs 18, 10 and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Everyone is looking for security. Everyone's looking for a, a strong tower, for a fortress, for a, for a castle, for a strong place. Let's uh, just watch a Lord of the Rings clip. We haven't for a long time, so it felt appropriate to do so. Great host, you say? All rise and How many? 10,000 strong at least. 10,000? It is an army bred for a single purpose. 
Let them come. I want every man and strong lad, able to bear arms, to be ready for battle by nightfall. Theoden's security is in his castle, in his keep. I know how to keep my own keep. I know how to keep my stronghold. We'll be safe here. No one, no enemy has ever penetrated beyond this wall. That's where his security is. Of course, the morality tale in the story is that Theoden cannot keep his own keep. The walls don't hold. The fortress will be breached. The enemy will come in. And in the end, Theoden and his people in the story need to be delivered. They're not going to be held secure by the strength of the castle walls. They're going to be rescued by external forces. Now, that clip doesn't really add anything to my sermon, I just love the clip. <laughs> now, there's a kind of ambu ambiguity in, in this uh, proverb, as there is in actually many of the, of the proverbs. The, and this is the ambiguity of wealth, because a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The wealthy do enjoy more security than the poor. And if you're poor, you live with insecurity all the time. Where will I get my next meal? Where will I sleep tonight? If I get sick, how will I pay for somebody to fix me? If I have kids, how can I pay for them to have shoes on their feet and schooling? And what will happen when I get old? If you're poor, those kind of questions are very real ones. The insecurities that you live with are the kind of insecurities the, wealth don't the wealthy don't have to wrestle with. If you're wealthy, you don't have to worry about those kind of questions. You know where you're going to get your next meal from. You know how you'll be provided for when you're old. You know how, what will happen if you get sick, so you'll better pay somebody to help you. You can look after yourself in a sense. But a rich man's wealth is like a high wall in his imagination. 
because the rich man's wealth might be less secure than he imagines. And we all know the cautionary tales. We all know the, 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 the cautionary tales about the rich person who loses it all, the rich person who makes a bad deal and suddenly riches fall to dust, the rich person who, whose life collapses for other reasons. We all know those kind of cautionary tales. Uh, one prime example would be Michael Jackson. It's a report from the website Business Insider. It's unclear what Michael Jackson's exact net worth was when he died. His family put out a questionable estimate that his earnings would have been 40 to 42 billion had he not died at the age of 50. But in 2005, when the pop legend was charged with child abuse, prosecutors thought he was on the edge of bankruptcy with $300 million in debt and $400 million in liabilities. It was said that he was a millionaire who spent like a billionaire. Jackson's prosecutors tried using the star's financial trouble as evidence of his guilt in the case. Jackson died in 2009. He was still in debt at the time of his death and was hoping his upcoming comeback tour would help him out. It's a cautionary tale. Uh, you can earn millions and millions and yet die in, in huge debt and, and uh, die at a young age and your wealth proves illusory as a, as a fortress, as a stronghold, as a security. But everyone's looking for security. Everyone's looking for a fortress. Everyone's looking for a, a castle wall they can hide behind or a comeback tour which will sort out their financial problems or whatever it might be. But money can't buy you security any more than it can buy you happiness. My favorite quote of all time, but all I ask is a chance to prove that money can't make me happy. Spike Milligan. There are lots of examples of those who have become rich and have become worse off as a consequence. The damage that riches has actually done them emotionally or in their relationships or in other ways. Now, of course, we have to also be honest there. Uh, if you are rich, you don't have the anxieties that the poor have. The poor carry all kinds of insecurities the rich don't have to worry about. And if you have money, then you can hold on to it. If you're wise, we live in the contemporary UK. We don't live in the world in which the proverb is written. It's not likely that hordes of Arameans and camels are going to come sweeping across the plains and plunder and pillage us and take our wealth away. That doesn't happen in the UK. We live, thank God, in the most secure and stable society the world has ever known. So if you've got wealth, the chances are that you can invest it with one of the wealth managers and you'll be able to keep it and rely on it and feel the security of that. But money as refuge is still fantasy. It's fantasy when you view security from the perspective of eternity. From the perspective of eternity, what is worldly wealth now? Death is the great leveler. We all come into the world with nothing and we leave with nothing. And whether you're a multi-millionaire or you're a pauper, we all come the same way and we all die the same way and then we all face eternity in the same way. And viewed from the perspective of eternity, financial wealth now offers no security. And there are things that money can't buy. Money can't buy a loving relationship, and money can't buy psychological health and well-being, can't even buy always physical health. The wealthy tend to live healthier, longer lives than the poor, but you're still going to get sick. You can't guarantee you won't get sick. Your money won't keep that from you. And so Proverbs 18 is kind of pushing us to answer these bigger questions. Where are you going to put your trust? Where are you going to invest? What offers true security? Is it God or is it Money. What is the most reliable fortress 
in which you can find your safety. Great Old Testament prophecy, one of my favorite passages of Scripture found in the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah prophesies and speaks this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. This is a prophecy of the Messiah. 500 years after Zechariah prophesied this, Jesus came humble and riding on a donkey. Jesus was a fulfillment of this prophecy as he is a fulfillment of all prophecy. And what Zechariah saw was one who was coming who would bring peace to the nations. He saw one coming who would bring global security that it's the rule of King Jesus, it's the rule of the Messiah that guarantees peace, that guarantees security. That's what Zechariah looked ahead to, and that's what Jesus began to inaugurate when he came riding that donkey into Jerusalem. Only when Zechariah saw this, when he prophesied this, it certainly wasn't the experience of his people. The people of Israel at this time were living in great insecurity. They were small in number. They were surrounded by enemies. They were financially poor. And what do you do in circumstances like that? What do you do when everything about life feels insecure, when you're surrounded by enemies, when you don't have enough resources? What do you do? When you look for security, you look for a stronghold, and where are you going to find it? You're going to hide behind a high wall. And Zechariah says to his people, and he says to us as well, return to your strongholds. Get into the castle, get into the fortified place, get into the safe place, come to the place of security. And this place of security isn't a literal, it's not a physical castle, it's not Helm's Deep or the walls of Jerusalem. And it's not your investments, it's not the size of your bank account or how happy your wealth manager is. It's God, that's where you find your place of security. goes on to say, The Lord of hosts will protect them. The Lord, their God, will save them. Return to your stronghold. What? Who is your stronghold? The Lord your God is your stronghold. For our American friends, they, of course, are faced with this choice every time they pick up a dollar bill. In God we trust. It's a very graphic kind of question every time a dollar bill is picked up. Who do you actually trust? Is it this green thing or is it God's? There's that choice. And of course, for many people, the In God We Trust motto is just an empty motto. But there's a question there, which I think is quite a healthy one on a a currency. Who are you going to trust? What's your security going to be in? Is it going to be in this note or is it going to be in God who owns all things? Return to your strongholds, O prisoners of hope, Zechariah would say. And the imagery here in this prophecy of Zechariah is very powerful. The people felt like prisoners, and he talks about being stuck in a waterless pit. And if you were an Israelite, you'd have understood the imagery he's talking about because of some key figures in Israel's story who'd been stuck in waterless pits. Think about the story of Joseph, 
who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Before he got sold as a slave and taken to Egypt, the first thing that happened to him, he was thrown into a waterless pit. He was stuck at the bottom of a dry well, into, a, I guess, just the muck and the mud at the bottom, stuck in there and trapped in there until he was lifted out and then sold into slavery. He, was, he knew what it was to be a prisoner in a waterless pit. Or the prophet Jeremiah, the same thing happened to him. He was speaking truth from God, about God, and that... Uh, result in opposition as so often it does and he was thrown into a waterless pit chucked down a well he was a prisoner there until he was lifted out and rescued and so when Zechariah says you're in this waterless pit the people would have known what he was talking about they would have had that story deep in their histories and the people at this time felt like prisoners but Zechariah says you will be rescued now how is that going to happen Why is it going to happen? It's going to happen because of the blood of the covenant. God has made promises to his people, and those promises are guaranteed by shed blood. And now Jesus, the humble donkey rider, has shed his blood for us. The cross is the ultimate sign of our security. Where are you going to find security? Where are you going to find a stronghold? Where are you going to find a refuge? Where are you going to find a castle? You come to the cross and you see the shed blood of Jesus, the promise of the covenant sealed in blood that God will rescue, God will deliver. That's where you find security. We're held secure by him. And that means that when we come to him, when we come running to the cross for our sanctuary, for our refuge, for our stronghold. When we come running to the cross, when we come running to Jesus, we find that what we have become is prisoners of hope. No longer are we prisoners shoved down a well, stuck at the bottom of a dry well, unable to get out, but we're now prisoners of hope. We're held captive by hope. The uh, letter to the Hebrews says this, we have this. The certainty of God's promises fulfilled in Jesus as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We have this hope. The imagery there is of an anchor that we're tied to it and it's gone into the heavenly places. Jesus is in the heavenly places now. He's passed through the curtain. He's with his Father in heaven. He's been raised from the dead and he's ruling over all things. And he's holding on to the other end of the line. And often on this side, in our experience now on the earth, it feels like we're battered and tossed and blown backwards and forwards. But if you've got this hope in Christ Jesus, if you run to the cross, you found your refuge in him, he's holding the anchor. You're held firm. He won't let you go. There's this certain hope that we Christians have. It means that Christians are investors in hope. Where do we invest? We invest in hope. And this Christian hope is very different from many other belief systems. It's very different from uh, many philosophical approaches or from uh, a a religion like, uh, like Buddhism, which would have us dispense with hope, which would see hope actually as a, as a dangerous thing. Um, French uh, professor of philosophy, Luke Ferry, says this, According to Tibetan Buddhism, hope is the greatest of misfortunes, for it is by nature an absence, a lack, a source of tension in our lives. For we live in terms of plans, chasing after objectives located in a more or less distant future, and believing that our happiness depends upon their accomplishment. 
Buddhism and other philosophical systems see hope as dangerous because it makes you want something, desire something, and instead Buddhism would prize detachment, uh, a, a, a detaching yourself from that kind of future hope. The trouble with that is that that kind of detachment is really difficult to achieve because the need for hope is so written into the human heart. We want to hope for something. And also, that kind of philosophical or religious approach just misunderstands the nature of Christian hope. That Christian hope isn't chasing after some kind of empty, hollow wish, but our hope lies in what has already been accomplished. It's a hope in what's already been done. It's not hoping for something which might but probably won't happen at some point in the future. It's hoping in what has already happened, in what Jesus has achieved. And that's why we're held captive by it. That's why we're prisoners of it, because the hope is real. It's solid. It's sure. And we haven't yet stepped fully into its realization, but... This hope is the anchor for our souls. As it says in Hebrews as well, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Christian hope isn't just wishful thinking, it's this assurance, this conviction of what Jesus has done and the fact that he holds us, that he's our security, he's our refuge, he's our strong tower. What we hope in is firm. It's more solid than any other investment it's more reliable than any high wall it's more life-giving than stoical detachment and it's the kind of hope that liberates us to take risks uh, it's a couple of uh, a team of people who are just at the moment moving from the UK across to Istanbul who are uh, connecting with the church that we're involved in they're going to start another church on the on the European side and let me just show you a uh, Greeting from Joel and Amy who are doing that. Hi, we're Joel and Amy Kendall. We've recently moved to Istanbul from London and with a team of people to start a new community in the city. And we're really uh, hoping to start something right in the centre of the city. Uh, so it's been great to uh, connect with a lot of the advanced family uh, in what we're doing. Thank you for your great encouragement and support. We're starting right in the centre of the city on the European side. Uh, nine million people on that side of the city. We've got a team of 15 who are landing over the next three to six months. Uh, and we're going to be starting something, learning language for two years, doing a, a full-on uh, Turkish speaking congregation after two years, wanting to launch something very Turkish with business at the heart of it, wanting to see a really reproducible model so we can really start, start many churches in years to come. That's our dreams and hopes. Uh, please pray for us. Um, yeah, great to connect. Now, that, that's, a, that's a risky thing to do. To, they're not being like Theoden. They're not huddled in Helm's Deep hoping that they'll just survive. To move from London to go to Istanbul is, a, is, a, is quite a risky thing to do. They've given up good jobs to go and start a new church in that city. It's the uh, a cost of 
going and learning a new language. Joel and Amy are having five hours of Turkish language teaching every day, Monday to Friday, just exhausting. Uh, navigating your, around, your way around a city of that kind of scale and, and complexity. Uh, it's a risky thing to do, but it's the kind of risk that Christians take because we know our hope is secure in Jesus. He's our refuge. He's our security. It's not your high-flying job in London like these guys have given up. It's not the house that you have, the money you have. It's not any of those things. It's our security in Christ, the reality of the cross, the covenant sealed in blood. That's what we trust in. frees us to take some risks. Of course, this also does affect how we handle our, our money. It frees us to be generous. Jesus' great teaching on this in, in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The challenge that Jesus throws down to us here is this. Will we trust him? Will we find our security in him? Will we invest in his kingdom? Will we invest in heaven? Will we make wise investments? Uh, our next big offering we're taking up here at Gateway is on the 5th and the 12th of June, just uh, two or three weeks away. And on that Sunday, we're again uh, looking to raise substantial money for what we're doing with our, with our buildings. We're looking to raise 50000 additional pounds this year to our, our general offerings to help pay for what we're doing uh, with starting at 502 and also things we want to begin doing here. And uh, we also want to give a big lump of that away to Ben and Lydia Green who are taking the risk of leaving Paul and moving to Madrid to be part of a church plant in Madrid and we want to help them as they go. And so we're looking again for generous giving on the 5th and the 12th of June. Really we need 20,000 pounds altogether that Sunday uh, to come in. We're, we're Taking, we, we, we're taking some risks in doing this again. We're, we're pushing into it. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to give again? How are we going to give those kind of sums again? How are we going to keep doing that and growing it? We do it by finding our security in God, by seeing Him as our stronghold, Him as our refuge, Him as our tower, and making that decision to invest in what is guaranteed, to invest in the kingdom of heaven. A book I've recommended many times over the years and recommend again. If, even if you don't read books, look how small it is. Anybody can read this book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Absolutely fabulous in helping us to think about these things right. He says this, If we give instead of keep, if we invest in the eternal instead of in the temporal, we store up treasures in heaven that will never stop paying dividends. Whatever treasures we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. We need to have this different perspective, this eternal perspective, this kingdom perspective that our security is found in God and good investments are the investments we place into 
his hands. Now, today is Pentecost Sunday. It was this day as the 120 disciples were gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem after the death and resurrection of Christ that the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them with power. And trusting God that he is our security and trusting him with our money and taking risks and being generous are fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works these things in us. The Holy Spirit keeps us from idolatry. He directs us towards our Heavenly Father. He points our gaze towards Jesus and the Father rather than to false gods. The Holy Spirit brings us into faithfulness and into goodness. He works goodness in us and through us. And you see that in the disciples on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and filled them had an immediate impact upon them. It transformed their sense of security. They'd been in the upper room, hiding away. Dangerous days and in a dangerous city. Their Lord and Savior had just been crucified on a cross. They were hiding away in this upper room, waiting, as Jesus had told them to do, for power from on high to come and clothe them. Power from on high comes upon them. The Holy Spirit fills them and they're propelled out of their upper room out onto the streets to preach Jesus Christ. Their sense of security changes. That no longer are they tucked away but they're out on the streets proclaiming Christ, his death and his resurrection and his power and his glory. They get out of the fortress of the upper room. They get into the true security that is theirs in Christ Jesus and proclaim him on the streets. And they get incredibly generous. It's one of the first things we read about those disciples, that one of the things that happens to them as a consequence of them being filled with the Spirit of God is they become incredibly generous. They start investing in the kingdom of God with the money that God has given them. And so for us here in Paul today, let us like those first disciples, let us, like them on that Pentecost Sunday, let us run to the Lord. He's our strong tower. He's our refuge. In him we truly can trust. He will hold us safe because of the blood of his covenant. Return to him, prisoners of hope. Let's pray.